This is the Education Gadfly Show. I'm tempted to use the old city of brotherly love cliche here, Mark, but it certainly uh, certainly sounds very good. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the Executive Director of the Philadelphia Schools Partnership, Mark Gleason. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hello, Mike. Yeah, Mark is joining us remotely, uh, the magic of technology, and I am flying solo this week. Uh, my, my usual co-pilot, David Griffith, is sick, so David, hope you're feeling better, but I will have to do this one alone. And Mark, uh, we are excited to hear about Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia school reform, I feel like, gets so little attention nationally, even though Philly is still a huge, huge city. It's not fair. It is definitely a big city, and there's a lot going on here uh, that's positive for families and students. So uh, happy to have the chance to talk a little bit about what's going on here. All right. Well, let's do that in our Ed Reform Update. All right, Mark. So first of all, tell us, uh, for folks that don't know, just a little bit about Philadelphia Schools Partnership, uh, what you guys do. We are what is sometimes referred to as a quarterback organization. Uh, we are a nonprofit. And fundamentally, what we do is act like a, a, a nonprofit venture capital fund. So we provide, we raise money from a wide variety of donors, and we then invest that money in the form of grants to schools to help new schools open, to help successful schools expand, either adding campuses or, or putting more seats in a building, uh, and sometimes as well investing in turnaround of low-performing schools when new leadership comes in and essentially is going to try to reboot the school. And is this all in the charter sector or the district sector too, even private schools? No, we do this across all, all three of the main sectors. So traditional public or district-run schools, public charter schools, and the private and parochial sector. And give us just a, a picture here on Philly. What percentage of kids are in charter schools right now across the city? So Philadelphia is the sixth largest city in America. We have about 240,000 school children, kindergarten through 12th grade. It's a big system. Uh, about yeah. 130,000 students are in the traditional district system. Uh, about 70,000 are in charter schools. So that's about 35% of all the public school children are in charters. And then we have about 37,000 students in various private schools, about two-thirds of those being in the traditional parochial Catholic system, and then a bunch of other independent private schools. All right. Well, that's helpful. And, and again, it is. It's a huge city, and that is a big percentage of kids in public charter schools. So, you know, in raw numbers, you must be up there, maybe what, behind Los Angeles, but probably not too many other cities in terms of raw numbers of kids in charter schools. All right. Well, one thing you wanted to talk about was that you finally have in Philadelphia a common enrollment system uh, across charter schools and traditional public schools. Uh, I think we've seen this now in what, maybe, uh, maybe we're up to maybe double digits in terms of the number of cities that have these. Tell us about your experience. We, so first of all, our system at this point is uh, across the charter school sector. Ah, just and the school okay. district gotcha. has also simplified enrollment in the district sector, but the two systems aren't joined together, at least not yet. Uh, this year, we facilitated on behalf of about two-thirds of the charter schools in the city, so 71 campuses participated, and we helped pull together a system where f students can apply to any of those 71 schools on one website with one form they, they set up a login, they can log in, they can research the schools, and then they can fill out a very simple form with their name, their address, uh, what grade they're going to be in, 
and they can save the form and then over the course of the application window, which is four months long, um, they can submit that to as many schools uh, amongst the participating set that they, that they want. Uh, and we just concluded the application window about three, four weeks ago, uh, and, and the first year was a tremendous success. So we had 30,000 students, just a little bit less than 30,000 students participate and they collectively submitted 123,000 applications to 71 charter schools in the city, all with one website, one form. Uh, and that's a big, big step for us because in a city that's this large, it's beautiful that we have so many school choices for families because there's no one right kind of school for every student. But it's a very complex and confusing landscape. And so this really brings uh, a lot of simplicity uh, for families, which, which we're pleased about. Yeah, and, and the argument has always been that if you can make the process more straightforward, uh, this is important for equity, right? Because you no longer have to have a, a PhD to figure out how to work the system or tons of time to go, you know, traipsing around town and filling out a bunch of different applications, which you're not going to have if you're working multiple jobs and you're struggling to make ends meet, right? That's absolutely right, Mike. And and the data that we collected in doing this just bears out the point. So. There are 47 zip codes in Philadelphia, and uh, every charter school that has a citywide enrollment, which is most of them, uh, got applications from at least 27 zip codes. So, you know, not everybody's applying to a school right in their neighborhood, which, which reinforces the point you're making about if you have to schlep across town to submit an application at more than one place, that becomes very time consuming. But, you know, now the other thing, though, that you sometimes see is there's a lot of excitement. These systems make a ton of sense. But then what you find is what we've been finding forever, which is that there are simply not enough good schools to go around, that everybody wants into a small group of high-performing charter schools, uh, which are, you know, just don't have nearly enough space. And yet helping them expand or grow, that just feels like such a slow slog. I mean, is that what you're seeing in Philly, too? It's absolutely what we're seeing. Uh, you know, families want access to the best schools they can get, and, and the highest performing schools in our charter sector generally got the most applications. Uh, so no surprise there. But look, that's a problem that predates the charter school sector. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, traditional public schools are generally enrolled by geography, meaning if you can afford a home in the right neighborhood, you get access to that local school. And forever, I mean, the reason home prices are highest in certain neighborhoods is because families want to live there and that drives the price up. So the idea that families have been clamoring to get into the best schools is an ages old problem. And, and if, if anything, the charter, the growth of the charter school sector in Philadelphia is helping to ameliorate that problem. We still have a very long way to go, of course. We, we are not filling, you know, we're not satisfying the desires of, of every family yet at this point. Yeah, I mean, what and what are those constraints to growth right now? If you've got some of those high-performing schools, charter schools that are, uh, you know, have huge waiting lists now, are way more people applying than can get in. What's keeping you all with uh, with your big money supporters from just helping them grow and expand? Well, charter schools are able to grow in Philadelphia. In fact, we've probably doubled the size of the sector in the last six to seven years. Uh, so wow. there's been dramatic growth. Uh, many schools have been approved. Probably about 15 new charter schools have been approved since 2015. Uh, two more are opening this coming fall. So there has been tremendous growth. But what we're seeing is that in a city this big, in both the traditional public school sector and in the charter school sector, you know, not enough schools are, are reaching that top le level of performance. We do have some outstanding charter schools. 
and we have some outstanding traditional district schools. And then we have a lot of other schools that are performing, you know, sort of in the middle range. And, and they're, they're in demand, but not to the same degree as those, as those high flyers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, those of us in the national education reform scene need to be paying more attention to Philly because uh, things are, are growing and happening there. One last question, Mark. You know, we've certainly seen the charter sectors in other big cities hitting the blue wave and, you know, a lot of the pushback from uh, from some activists on the ground, uh, you know, the teacher strikes in Los Angeles, uh, some of the charter strikes in Chicago, uh, de Blasio, not so charter friendly in New York. I mean, it sounds like things are better in Philly. Is there anything that we can learn from that? I mean, how have you all worked the politics so that charters can keep growing there? I would say two things, Mike. First of all, school choice has been a hallmark of Philadelphia going back to the 1800s. The parochial school system was first uh, pioneered in Philadelphia. And, you know, there were moments in the 20th century when 30 to 35 percent of the students were in the Catholic sector. That's much diminished today. It's more like 10 to 12 percent. But the idea that there's no one right system that's going to serve every family is pretty hard. It's baked pretty deep into the DNA of Philadelphia. Uh, More recently, I would say in the last seven to eight years, school leaders across the three sectors, along with political leaders, including mayors and and others, have really worked to facilitate collaboration between the sectors. And so we have a principal training program in the city now that produces leaders that go into all three types of schools. We have teacher, uh, teacher development programs that are very intentionally trying to meet the needs of all three sectors. Uh, We did an event over the weekend, a recruiting event, where uh, uh, teachers were invited in from other cities to come learn about the education uh, ecosystem in Philadelphia. And different schools were there talking about the jobs that they're going to have available for next year. Again, it was a tri-sector enterprise. And so while we still have political complexity and there are still anti-charter elements in the city, at the school level, there is so much cross-pollination and collaboration happening that we've really been able to bypass some of the, you know, the worst examples of that district charter divide. Wow. I, I am, I'm tempted to use the old city of brotherly love cliche here, Mark, but it certainly, uh, certainly sounds very good compared to what we're seeing in many places around the country. Super exciting. Well, again, Mark Gleason, executive director of the Philadelphia Schools Partnership. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope you'll come back sometime soon, especially as we need uh, all the good news we can get. I would love to come back sometime, Mike. That would, be, that would be great. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Adam Tyner, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Adam filling in for Amber this week. And Adam, I am going solo. David Griffith, my trusty partner, is sick this week, so it's just me, baby. Bailed out on you, huh? He did. Well, for good reason. I hope he's getting well. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, yeah, what uh, what is going on in the world of research? Well, today we're looking at the value of smarter teachers, international evidence on teacher cognitive skills and student performance by economist Rick Hanischek and his collaborators. Of course, Dr. Hanischek has done a lot of work related to teacher quality, is often credited with inventing the value added approach to assessing teacher quality, probably much to the consternation of some teachers these days, but good for us data-hungry wonks. In this study, they look at countries, they look across countries to see if there's a relationship between how smart the teachers are and how well the students perform academically. 
They mm -hmm. used data from the PISA, the most famous international test of early high school students, and other data sources from the OECD, one called the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies, or the PIAC. The first thing that they find is that there's a lot of difference across countries, not just in how the students perform, but there's also a lot of variation in teachers' cognitive skills as measured by the literacy and math uh, assessments on the PIAC, which is for all adults. And uh, they, they give some benchmarks based on the average PIAC score for Canadians with different levels of education. That's the whole adult population in Canada. So like a Canadian with a graduate degree, a bachelor's degree, and so on. Mm -hmm. And they find that the median teacher's cognitive skills in some countries are as low as or even lower than those of the average Canadian with a vocational degree. That's the lowest level they benchmark. Whereas in a couple of countries, the average teacher has better cognitive skills than even the Canadians with graduate degrees. Mike, you want to guess the two countries where the teachers were smarter than Canadians with master's degrees? Hmm, let's see. How about, I'm just guessing here, uh, Singapore? Good guess, but and, not on the list. Yeah. Uh, and, Finland, uh, Finland and yes. Japan. Japan. Yeah. Darn it. The U.S. Yep. is actually in the middle of the pack with teacher scores around the average, slightly below average in math and slightly above average in literacy. Okay, so the study's main question is, are the differences in teachers' cognitive skills related to student performance? And they find that there is a correlation, specifically increased teacher smartness of one standard deviation is correlated with about a 15% of a standard deviation increase in student performance. That's a substantial difference. The, the skeptical listener might be thinking, well, is this just about having smarter teachers in your country? Or is it really about having a smarter society overall? I mean, if everybody in the society is in some places or smarter than in other places, then um, you might expect a correlation between teachers and students, even if the teachers weren't doing anything special. So the researchers do a few things to account for this possibility. To me, the most convincing point that they make is that when they run these placebo tests where they substitute the average cognitive skills of other occupations, remember the PIAC mm -hmm. isn't just for teachers, but for all people in the country, when they substitute other occupations for the teachers, the correlation goes away. So as they put it, the relationship between teacher cognitive skills mm -hmm. and student performance isn't driven by overall skill levels in the country. It's what teachers know that matters. They also explore some ways of improving the cognitive skills of teachers and recommend higher teacher pay for the most effective teachers, especially here in the States where there is a big pay penalty for being a teacher according to their calculations. And that part's interesting. I mean, here they are acknowledging that it is a problem that we are not paying teachers enough in this country to get uh, more of the highest cognitive ability people to go into teaching. And, you know, Han Hanushek is a well-known uh, conservative. He's been skeptical over the years about spending more money on education, uh, but he seems to be acknowledging that teacher salaries are too low. Is, is that fair? Am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, they look at the at the teacher pay in a bunch of different countries trying to control for skills. So like what, um, what do people with similar skills to the teachers, what kind of wages do they make compared to, to teachers? And the United States is second to last in that comparison mm -hmm. of the countries that they, that they analyze um, with a big pay penalty for being a teacher, given the same level of skills. Yeah. You know, uh, our colleague Chucker Finn writes about this in this week's Gadfly and, and makes the point, as he's made before, is that we continue to make choices in this country to spend our education dollar on things other than teacher salaries. You know, that we 
spend it on more teachers, both because we have this fetish with small class sizes, but also all these non-teachers in our schools, you know, the administrators, uh, you know, some some roles that might be valuable, like literacy coaches and the like, but we seem to be building a system that assumes we're going to have, uh, you know, these fairly low paid teachers, and then we'd build all this other stuff around them. Other countries uh, have found a way to pay teachers a lot more and maybe made some choices like larger class size and, right. and just thinner, thinner staffing models to make that possible. Uh, and we could certainly do that too. Well, I, I guess Han Yushek though is saying it's not just about raising teacher salaries overall, but also about really raising it dramatically for the highest performing and, and smartest teachers. Yeah. And I mean, that raises the question of how much would you really have to raise teacher salaries in order to get the kind of impact via this method? I mean, I'm very sympathetic to teachers not getting paid enough, especially in some states. I think there's a lot of variation across states and and in some states, it seems like they really need to be paid more. Um, it, it seems pretty clear. But I mean, to get a one standard deviation increase in the cognitive mm-hmm. uh, skills of teachers, it might take some pretty game changing uh, you know, changes in teacher salary to really get that kind of effect. So it, then that makes the question like, what would we, would we be trading for that? So, I mean, are yeah. there other ways that we could get to this maybe through education schools doing a better job getting uh, teachers' cognitive skills stronger. I mean, people complain about the rigor of education schools a lot. Maybe yeah. if they were more rigorous, teachers would have better cognitive skills. But um, there's, there's, a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of stuff going into it. No, that's interesting. But, you know, look, if, if you believe in markets, you say that you have to worry about the fact that people with uh, high cognitive skills have lots of choices. Uh, and they're going to worry about salary is one thing they care about. No doubt. You know, one idea I've seen floated, I'm trying to remember if this was maybe Marguerite Rose's idea, was to say to teachers, individual teachers, hey, uh, if you're willing to take uh, a larger class size, uh, we will take all that money that we're basically saving and put it into your salary. Right. And, and that... And, if, and you only make that offer to teachers that are effective or super smart, uh, and that that could be a way to, in effect, get to merit pay, uh, but maybe without some of the controversy of other approaches, and and just basically say, look, let's let's find a way. This might be one solution to investing more in our teachers, uh, especially the teachers we need the most. Mm-hmm. All right, well, good stuff. Thanks for bringing it to us, Adam. Very interesting stuff, and man, Eric Hanyshek still crushing it after all these years. Well, that is all the time that we've got for this week's Education Gadfly Show. Till next week, I'm Adam Tyner, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.